0: So about 10 years ago, I, uh, I signed up to play in a, uh, in a hockey league down in Ann Arbor. Uh, I was still living in Howell at the time, and uh, I uh, was spending a lot of time in Ann Arbor, though. I was going to school at Washtenaw Community College. Uh, Abby was going to school at Concordia. Uh, so obviously spending a significant amount of time down in Ann Arbor. was itching to play hockey, so I just kind of got onto their website, signed up as a free agent, and... Uh, Got onto a random team, bunch of random guys, you know. Ended up being pretty fun. Um, But, like, it was one of those leagues where, like, we weren't good enough to be, like, really skilled. But, like, not bad enough to where, you know, we weren't completely hopeless. It was actually, you know, like, not bad enough to where it actually mattered, you know, when we played the games. So we knew where we were at. Um, And uh, we would play the same five or six teams throughout like a 20 25 game schedule or something like that. So, being that hockey's a physical sport, not that good, but good enough that it mattered, things did tend to get a little heated. Uh, we would, you know, get into I mean not drop the gloves kind of thing, but um, certainly would get pretty physical and and, uh, and you would start to develop rivalries and, and, and people that you just didn't like. For me, there was this guy in on this one team who is 6 foot 8. Dude was a monster. Picture Dave Collins, but less angry. So <laughs> I'm 5'7". I mean, so this dude's like, you know, and for whatever reason, I mean, called it a Napoleon complex or whatever, I was drawn to this guy like moth the flame. And I hated this guy. With the truest sense of the word, I hated this guy because he would just kick the crud out of me. The whole, I mean, the living crud. I would, uh, Abby, this was at a time where Abby and I were still dating, so she was still trying to impress me. So she actually, <laughs> she actually came to my stuff. Um, you know, the minute the ring went on that finger, that was... <laughs> no mas. <laughs> so... We would ride home together, or ride back to her dorm, or wherever. And I'd be like, "I hate this guy. I cannot stand this." I would have bruises and like red marks from his stick when he'd slash or or, or push me out of the crease uh, all across my back and up and down anywhere I didn't have padding. This guy had a just a non-padding-seeking missile for a stick that would just absolutely just wreak havoc. And I, you know, certainly gave it back to him. Uh, during one of the games, though, I happened to look up at the back of his helmet, and he had the word tool written there in, in sticker. And I thought, that is accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you, sir, are correct. <laughs> Turns out he was a fan of the band, but whatever. So every time I would see this team on the schedule, I'd think, God, I hate this guy. I hate this guy. I cannot stand playing against this. I mean, I hated this whole team because I hated this guy. Uh, after the season got over, it was, you know, 25 games or whatever, we got done. The team that I was playing on folded, and uh, so I re-entered back into the free agency pool, got put on a different team, and uh, first game of the year, we're sitting in the locker room, getting to meet all the guys, you know, guys are coming in, and everyone seems pretty cool, pretty chill, and uh, in walks this big guy, and I was like, oh, sweet, this is great. This is the kind of guy that you want to have on your team, and, you know, you don't want to play against him. He happens to sit down next to me. We get talking really cool guy, real chill. We're into the same stuff. We're talking about hunting and fishing and and, and everything. Just really, really nice guy. I'm like, all right, cool. I like this guy. We get up to go on the ice. He stands up in front of me, puts his helmet on. I look up. What do you think the word is that I see in the back of his helmet? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So now we're on the same team. It turns out this guy is like the nicest guy I have ever met, like ever. Uh, to the point where, after this session got done, we like he formed his own team. I helped him run this team for like ten years. Uh, we, I was li- like I said, I was living in Howell at the time, but I was spending a lot of time in Ann Arbor. And these hockey games would start late, like 11:30 at night, late sometimes. And I would have class the next day. So this guy and his wife like let me stay at their house. Like they had an extra room, they let me crash. Uh, I had a key to their home. Like at one point in my life. <laughs> Uh, Just, you know, we would hunt together, fish together. When their firstborn was born, I watched their house for them. Just the nicest, most down-to-earth people. So, yeah, God's got a great sense of humor there. (laughs) I think there's a, it's safe to say that as humans, we all have people like that in our lives. People that we just don't get along with. People that we have conflict with. People that we don't agree with not saying it's a good thing, but it's certainly a real aspect of, of our daily struggle. There are people we just don't see eye to eye with. And there might even be people that we take that a step further. We might hate people. We might despise people, whether or not we might have actually met them or not. There might be people that we just hear of, that we just, you know, can't stand them. Hate these people. As we continue our sermon series today on witnesses, we're, we're found face to face with one of those people. Now imagine the confusion and the skepticism and the triumph and the awe and just everything going on all at once in the minds of the people of the early church and of the Jewish community as none other than Saul of Tarsus, as we look into our New Testament reading from the 26th chapter of Acts, is standing before King Agrippa and witnessing about Jesus Christ. Witnessing about the very faith that not too long ago, he was set against destroying. It's crazy to think about. This can't be the same guy, right? I mean, Scripture is full of, of people kind of with the same names, you know, a lot. And, and, and you would think this has just got to be one of those coincidence things. There's no way that this Saul is the same Saul from, from when we first meet him back in chapter 7. We see a man who pulls a complete 180 on his strongest convictions in life. He completely turns it around. It's seemingly impossible it's crazy to think of. If we were to find someone who wasn't familiar with this story, I think if we were to, you know, tell them about this guy and, and the change that happened in his life, it'd be a, we'd have a hard time trying to convince him, this is the same guy. This is what happened to him. Because if we rewind this thing a little bit, we head back to when we first meet Saul, back in the seventh chapter of Acts. We find a man who is leading the execution of a disciple of Jesus. This is just after Pentecost. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're out preaching. They're out proclaiming the good news. Stephen is caught. He's brought before the Sanhedrin. He's tried and he's stoned to death. And at the head of this execution party is none other than Saul of Tarsus. And as we continue to read a little bit in Acts, we've learned very quickly that Saul does not like this new religion. Saul does not like this Jesus. Saul does not like his followers. He's a direct threat to Saul's way of life. Now Saul's a very intelligent man, a very wise man. He knew his scriptures very well and he had the, the opportunity to study under the most revered and respected Jewish teachers, Gamaliel. And under that, that, that studying and tutelage, he would have uh, completely memorized, word for word, the first five books of the Bible. On top of that, he would have learned you know, extensively the prophecies and, and the other scriptures within, within the Holy Scriptures Uh, Gamaliel was a, um, like I said, very renowned, and and, and he kind of took some different uh, approaches to to his teaching. He actually teaches uh, students Greek poetry as well. It was said that Gamaliel, uh, that the law was never spoken as eloquently than when Gamaliel spoke it. This was the guy to study under, and this is who Saul studied with. Saul was a Pharisee as well. Most of us familiar with scripture know who the Pharisees are. It meant he was very passionate, very zealous of the law and have written an oral tradition. And he was highly, highly devoted to that law and to that tradition to the point where it kind of blinded him a little bit. He was so focused on that law and that tradition. And Saul sees Jesus and his disciples as a threat. He's a threat to that tradition. He's a threat to that law. And it, it, it blows my mind to think that he would see that because this is a man who knew his scriptures, knew his scriptures frontwards and backwards, had a bunch of them memorized. He would have known the prophecies. He would have known the messianic prophecies. And, and when Jesus comes along and just starts hitting these one after the other, you know, and how, how Saul misses that is just, I, I had a hard time trying to figure that out. While I was kind of doing some research, I, I stumbled upon a, a psychological effect called the backfire effect. And uh, it sort of kind of opens a window, I think, to what Saul was going through. Basically, the backfire effect states that anytime someone is confronted with evidence or uh, statistics or something that begins to violate a core ideological belief that they hold, as opposed to looking at this evidence and statistics and say, wow, this is uh, maybe I really need to kind of reconsider what it is that I'm doing and thinking here, as opposed to doing that, they push it away and they try to completely destroy and eradicate that thought because it, it violates such a core ideological principle. You can almost see this is what's going on with Saul. I'm sure there's a lot more that's going on, but you can see this effect happening. Even his own teacher, Gamaliel, when the disciples are brought into the Sanhedrin for for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, they send them out, Gamaliel stands up and says, Look, we've had insurrections like this happen before. We've killed their leader, and then we've left it alone, and their followers have dispersed. We've killed this Jesus. I advise everyone to just leave this alone, because... If this isn't of God, nothing's going to come from it. These guys are just going to go away. But if this is of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. Now, these words fall on deaf ears for Saul. Saul's reaction is to kill them all. Kill every last one of these blaspheming people. And Saul sets about to destroy the church of Jerusalem. And he scatters people. He wrongfully imprisons men and women, sends them to jail, murders people. He believed what he is doing is just and right, too. He believes he's protecting this faith and this religion. Now, ironically enough, he ends up scattering the faith. Micah loves, now that we have all those dandelions out, you know, Michael loves grabbing the, the, the puffball dandelions and whew, scattering them all over our lawn. Even I've been out there for like an hour trying to pick dandelions out of my lawn, and Micah grabs one, whew, And those seeds just scatter all all across, sowing new little dandelions to sprout up later. (laughs) This is what Saul does. By persecuting the church within Jerusalem, he scatters the faith. And pockets of faith begin to to, to sprout out all throughout the region now. It's not just centralized now. Now it's everywhere. A place that it was really starting to, 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 to sprout up is a place in Damascus. Now Damascus was a key commercial city of the time, and Saul would have looked at that and said, okay, If I can go to Damascus, and if I can eradicate this Jesus and his followers there, I can probably take care of this entire movement. Cut off the head, and the body will follow. So that's where we pick up in Acts 9. As Saul is moving down this road near Damascus, when suddenly a light from heaven flashes around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what to do. And the men traveling with Saul see the light, they hear, but they don't see what's going on, and they're stood there speechless. So Saul gets up, but he's left blinded. And so he's led to the city of Damascus, where he doesn't eat or drink for three days and for three nights. Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He encounters Jesus. And Jesus tells him, look, you're not just persecuting me, or you're not just persecuting my followers, you're persecuting me. We are all the body of Christ. And by persecuting them, he's persecuting Jesus personally. Now it's important to note that Saul is left blinded and impacted, but the full conversion hasn't taken place yet. Enter a guy named Ananias. Now, Ananias is seemingly kind of an overlooked, um, I mean, sort of insignificant seeming, I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of, of, of Scripture. He doesn't really play a big role in it. We don't hear about Ananias before this. We hear of another guy with the same name that definitely isn't the same guy. Uh, and we don't really hear about him afterwards. But he plays a key role here. He's described as a disciple. He's held in high regard in the Jewish community. He's a devout observer of the law. He's an important man of faith. He probably was like an elder within the church of Damascus. Most importantly, he was a Christian. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a guy that Saul would have been after. This is a guy that if Saul came across, Saul would have said, I've got papers here that says you were to come back with me to Jerusalem and I'm putting you on trial for for, for this. So Ananias is going about his day when suddenly he has a vision. In Acts 9, the Lord says to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. He's had a vision and he sees a man named Ananias and he places his hands on him to restore his sight. Now Ananias' response is, what? Are you serious? Are you sure you know what you're talking about here? It's honestly not unlike any other responses to people in Scripture when God or when Jesus calls us out of our comfort zone. Moses, when called by God, said, Have you met my brother Aaron? Way better speaker than me. Gideon said, I just need one more sign. Just one more sign. And then I know, I know that you know, you're really calling me. Jonah said, Nineveh? Dude, I heard Joppa's beautiful this time of year. I'm just going to go that way. Thomas said, Show me the wounds or I'm not going to believe. Abram said, do you realize how old I am? Do you know how impossible this is? Ananias says, do you know who this guy is? Do you have any idea? Because I know who this guy is. I know that this guy is total scum. He's here to eradicate the church. He's here after people like me. He's here to destroy what you're trying to build. Surely you can't be talking about me doing this, A, and then B, talking about this guy. And Jesus says, I absolutely know who this guy is. I know what he's done. I know who he was. I know who he is. But I also know who he's going to be, what he's capable of. I know that he is my chosen instrument to proclaim my good news to the Gentiles. And I need you to go minister to him. So, Ananias goes to the house of Judas on Strait Street. He opens the door, and there he sees Saul, blind. And he goes to him and he lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul. He calls him brother. He calls him brother. They are not brothers. How powerful is that? He prays over him and says, Jesus has sent me here so that you may receive your sight back and so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. He gets up. He spends some time in Damascus with the disciples, and immediately he begins preaching and witnessing about Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And Ananias had no earthly business ministering to Saul. He had no earthly business doing that at all. He could have walked in there, prayed over Saul, Saul could have looked at him and said, and you've just proven to me that you're a Christian, and I'm taking you back to Jerusalem, and you're going to go to jail for this. Or Ananias could have looked at him and said, you know what? You can rot in blindness for all I care. I know who you are. I know that you're scum. You deserve this. You can stay like this. You're not going to do this church any favors. As a matter of fact, it's probably best if I leave you here starving and blinded than actually minister to you. But how the words from Jesus in our gospel ring very true through this story. You heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. Did did Jesus love Saul? Did Jesus love Saul when he was persecuting, destroying, wrongfully imprisoning men and women and murdering people? Did Jesus love him? Absolutely. Absolutely did he love him. Now there's a huge difference between condoning someone's actions and loving them. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved Saul. And that's what Ananias sees. When he walks in that room, he doesn't see his enemy. He sees a brother in Christ. Now, throughout this story, we don't just see a conversion in, in, in Saul. We see one in Ananias as well. Now, obviously, the, con- the conversion of Saul is a huge, significant turning point in, in, in the story of our faith and in, in the story of, of, of proclaiming the good news. You know, to take a man who is so, so adamantly set against Jesus to the point where he was willing to do anything to get rid of that message, to then encountering him and then turning around and going and preaching it everywhere, all the way to Rome. It's amazing to think about, and it is seemingly impossible. But Ananias has a conversion too. He sees Saul not as an enemy, but as a fellow human. And a fellow child of God. God created Saul. Jesus died for him. He looks at Saul and says, man, this is a guy that needs grace. Just like I need grace. Just like everyone else needs grace. Saul and Ananias are witnesses of conversion. That dying to ourselves and rising anew with Christ, being made completely new, being able to take that 180 spin, And that's the beauty of conversion. We can lay our old selves at the feet of Jesus and be changed, fundamentally changed. And that's what he's calling us to do today to be witnesses as well, to be witnesses just like Saul and to be witnesses just like Ananias, to be witnesses of conversion and change. Because when we accept Jesus in our lives, we're changed. Do you have fears? Do you have hurts? Do you have sorrow? Do you have doubt? Do you have unbelief? Do you have stress? Do you have any of that garbage that builds up in our heart? That's where change can happen. That's what Jesus comes to do, to convert that. And it, become, it just starts with a simple prayer. Lord, help me to be changed. Thank you for changing my heart, God. Lord, I lay this at your feet. Because when we can live that life of change, when we can live that life of conversion, we too are the witnesses that Jesus is calling us to be. Amen.